Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around drinking and talking about writing, publishing, the whole creative process, and occasionally coffee. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are Chaz and Karen Brenchley, John Schmidt, and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 53, Morning with Ellen Clages. Welcome, Ellen. Hi. I didn't know I was the only guest and you guys were all the hosts. That makes me a parasite, doesn't it? No, that makes you an honored guest. This is Tuesday. You know, like the song from uh, the Mickey Mouse Club set back in the 60s and 70s, today is Tuesday. You know what that means? Oh, please sing it. (laughs) The one, today is Tuesday. You know what that means? We're going to have a special guest. (laughs) Sing it, Karen. (laughs) So roll up your sleeves and sweep the mat clean. Touch up the side, something so the welcome can be clean. Oh, anyway, I forgot. Roll up the carpet, stripe up the band, give a little hip hooray, hip hooray, wiggle your ears like good musketeers. We're going to present our guest today because Tuesday is Ellen Clage's day. Yay! Yay. <laughs> Ellen, we were just noticing you have been nominated for awards like all of the big ones in sci fi and fantasy the Hugo, the Nebula, the Campbell. Every time you write a story, it seems you've got it. But we invited you in particular to talk about children's books today because, oh my gosh, it's the Scott O'Dell Award for Historical Fiction. Tell us about writing kids' books and how is it to be just so amazing that everything you do wins something because we all want to be like you now. Well, first of all, everything I do doesn't win something, although I guess a large percentage of it has. But you don't know that when you're writing it. I, like like any other writer, I'm sitting there going, well, this is a piece of shit. I shouldn't do this. I should do something else. I should do something more like book that just won something. I just, I, I, this is, I can't write. I, you know, all, all of the things that run through every writer's head run through my head. And my first drafts are wretchedly bad. They always suck. Um, this is one of the things that I, when I talk to kids, I remind them that first drafts always suck. That's, um, that's a hugely important thing to all the people that are listening and thinking, I want to be a writer. Ter- Terry Pratchett well, said the first draft is you telling the story to yourself. So, and, you- Okay, and, and my, my analogy is the first draft is like you taking a piece of clay and throwing it down on a wheel and going, look, I have made a vase. <laughs> and... If you have good friends, all of your friends are going, um, no, it's a lump of clay. <laughs> and you're going, no, no, I have made a vase. And they're going, no, really, it's a lump of clay. Um, and the skill is taking that lump of clay and figuring out what doesn't belong and how to shape it. And, and it's a lot of work. And eventually, you do come out with a vase, but not then. Um, and I tell kids that. And I tell kids it's just a brain dump. You are getting something out of your head and onto paper or a screen. In my case, it's paper. I write longhand. Um, so I am getting it out of my head, through my hand, through the pen, onto paper, and it is invariably really stupid the first time. So can, can, you, can you estimate how much of the first draft is still there in the final version, or is that just not, not possible to do? It, some paragraphs make it through 99.9% intact. Yeah. You know, I will, I will change one word. Some of them come out and I just look at it and go, 
well, damn. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's the sort of thing that you, you blow up and put on your refrigerator so that people will admire it. Um, and then other things just get cut completely and totally. And the rest is, so it's probably, it's a bell curve. You know, let's say 15, 20% gets through most of the way. 15, 20% gets thrown out somewhere through the process. Mm -hmm. And the other 70%-ish is massaged and in its nascent form or its dough that becomes bread or mm -hmm. its sauce that needs to reduce or any other number of, of analogies. But it, probably on either end, there's just wholesale crap and there's gems that for some reason pop out of my brain like Minerva springing from the head of Zeus. Sure. Um, but you know the 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 my favorite part. I hate I hate starting projects. Oh, nice. I hate first. Okay. No, no, no. You love it. I hate it. <laughs> I hate starting projects. I hate first drafts. What I really love is when I'm about 30-40% into the process and I actually have raw material to work with mm. because my favorite part of the process is figuring out what doesn't belong and what needs to be there and where the repetition is where it shouldn't be and where a piece is missing like in a jigsaw puzzle you're going well there's okay there's a little blue thing with a green edge and i absolutely adore adore that process i can spend six or seven hours without food or water or breathing when okay. i'm in the middle uh, of that process oh my god ellen it, you are the first person that has ever said you like editing better than the initial writing I so much, I, okay. You're I amazing. Love <laughs> I love research more than editing, and I love editing more than writing. And this may explain your many awards. Well, also, it could. Yeah. Also, so then, what was it like writing um, with Andy Duncan for Awakula Springs, which also won an award? Um, how, did that, how did that change your, your method? Well, it didn't, because Andy, Andy has a very similar method. And we were actually together in the same room three times, maybe, during that process. Um, it, and, it, and it took us 10 years. <laughs> I had an idea, and I just kept filling up a folder with things that seemed to be related to that idea. But I could not for the life of me figure out what the story was. It was really cool stuff, yeah. and it had to do with, I had found in the National Enquirer a full-page article in color about a very elderly cheetah wearing an old man shirt and pants with suspenders, smoking a cigar, drinking whiskey, and living in a trailer park in L.A. When you say cheetah, you mean chimpanzee? I mean chimpanzee yeah. in a shirt and pants and smoking a cigar and drinking whiskey and living in a trailer park in L.A. Yeah. And boy, is that a science fiction story. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't know what the story was, and and it kept dovetailing with things about Florida in the 1930s and invasive species, and so the folder kept getting bigger and bigger. And one night, I woke up after possibly a little too much wine and thought, "Well, I fixed this. It's an Andy Duncan story." <laughs> <laughs> And I cannot write an Andy Duncan story because only Andy Duncan can write an Andy Duncan story. 
So the next time I was in the same place at the same time with Andy, I said, let me buy you a beer and pitch you a story. And he said, and I have to do this in Andy's voice, so forgive me. He said, well, I'm not editing anything right now, but but sure, I'll have a beer with you. And yeah. so we sat down and had a beer, and I told him all of this really cool stuff that I'd been finding out about the filming of the Tarzan movies in this swamp in Florida and Cheetah in L.A. in the 80s. And, and every once in a while, Andy would go, oh, 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 do you know about? And then he would tell me something, and then we would get another beer. Um, and at the end of it, he, I said, well, you're really excited about this and you've got really great ideas. You know, let me just give you, I've got this like three inch thick file by that time. Let me give it to you and you can run with it. And he said, no, 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 no. I think we should wrap this together. Of course, we'll never, my, well, wait, we might be able to sell it with both our names on it. And so Every year for the next, actually the next year, we were meeting up at a conference called ICFA in Florida, um, and it meets every March, except for this March, because nothing met this March. Um, So the next year, Andy and I sat down and actually, unusual for both of us, made an outline and a plot so that we were on the same page. Neither one of us ever do that in our own work. and then we went home with full plans to like just knock this thing out. For the next eight years, <laughs> we met up every March, and we would meet in the lobby, and we would hug each other, and one of us would say, so have you done anything on it? And the other one would say, no, I'm so bad. I'm so bad. Or Andy would say, so how's it going? And I'd go, I haven't done dick. And he'd go, oh, good. Neither have <laughs> I. So after, in year number nine and a half, I think, we finally said, look, we're never going to get anything done on this unless Andy said, what we should do is this summer, we should meet up halfway between where you live and where I live. He lives in Maryland. I live in San Francisco. We looked on a map. Go to Denver? Oklahoma. Oh, I'm sorry. And we, we both said, I am not going to Oklahoma in the <laughs> summer. Um, and then we said, well, you know, most of this is set in, in south of Tallahassee, Florida. Why don't we just go to Tallahassee for a week together? And so we did. And we got a, a two-room suite with a, a shared kitchen and living room. And we went to the Florida State Archives and we drove around to all the places that we wanted to set it and took notes and took pictures. We ate really good barbecue. And at night, we, Andy had brought his laptop and we could hook it up to the flat screen TV. And we would either watch a Tarzan movie or The Creature from the Black Lagoon and its sequels every night and take notes. And just... Okay, me and Andy Duncan together for a week, no one breathes because somebody is talking. <laughs> so, so we just talked and talked and talked, and we talked through the story. And, and at one point we thought, well, when we were planning this trip, we thought we will write 1,500 words a day a piece and just knock this thing out. And by the end of a week in Tallahassee, much to Andy's wife's chagrin, because obviously the vacation was free and we had nothing to show for it i had written 500 words maybe and andy had written 600 words maybe and we both went home with the promise that we would you know knock this out in the next month and it would all be good it took us 
another year and a half, but by God, we actually wrote yeah, it. Was- um, and at the end, we were sitting in the bar at ReaderCon in Boston in July of 2012, and it was almost done. We didn't have a title, and we kept coming up with clever titles. And Andy's wife finally came into the bar, pushed a beer aside, said, why don't you all just call it Wakulla Springs and be done with it? <laughs> Got up and left. <laughs> I love Sydney. Yeah. Well, okay. I, um, and at one point in the middle of this final thing, and we're, we're, we're taking notes on cocktail napkins, literally, Andy said, so there's really nothing fantastic in this story. And, well, I, there probably should be if we'd like to sell it to anybody that knows who we already are. But, and I said, is there something you want to change? Is there something you want to add? He said, no, I love it the way it is. And I said, well, I do too. So let's see what happens. So Andy and I, but we never, we, what the pro the actual process other than discussing it was I would write a section and send it to Andy and then he wouldn't respond for six, eight months. Mm-hmm. And then, and I would be sending him frantic emails going, have you gotten this? You don't have to do anything. I know you're teaching, but, you know, let me know if you've gotten this. And then I gave up because obviously we had not talked about editing each other, and he is offended, and he will never speak to me again, and this is over, which turned out not to be true. Um, but we basically wrote wrote chunks and sent them to each other and then turned into editors yeah. And then at the very end, Andy said, well, it was your idea, so you get final, final edit. And I spent six weeks turning Andy's syntax into mine and my sentence structure into Andy's. Mm. And to this day, I don't think anybody but the two of us could possibly guess who wrote what. And could you? I mean, do you, are, are you clear? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember, I remember the process. Right. Um, yeah. I remember, I remember my first drafts. I remember Andy's comments. I remember what my first drafts come out to. So yeah, I, I think, I think I probably can. And there are, there is one paragraph that we actually wrote at the same time in the same room, <laughs> and that's the the prologue paragraph. Okay. Yeah. And other than that, we just we have similar enough styles that. I made Andy sound a little like me, and I made me sound a little like Andy, and... And it doesn't really show. It's, no. It's a product. It really is. Yeah. Um, and then you published it where? In the first well, we, we, we were gonna, we were trying to figure out where we should send it, and Tor.com at that point did not have a standalone novella program. Yeah. Did not have the lovely paperback novellas that they do now. Um, so, but they paid the best for online stories. And so we looked at their submission guidelines and it said absolutely nothing longer than 17,000 words, not even if you've won the Nobel Prize, really we mean it. Yes. And Wakulla was 35,000. And you so, sent it a- No, we, I, sent, I sent Patrick Nielsen Hayden an email and said, so I, I really have read your guidelines and... <laughs> And I and I really do know that you don't want anything over seventeen thousand. But Andy Duncan and I have just finished this very odd piece. Would you like to see it? And 
24 hours later, Patrick wrote back and said, you and Andy Duncan? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I need to see this. Send it to me. Yeah, so we sent it to him, and he bought it three weeks later, um, yeah. which is about five weeks, five, five months and a week shorter than their usual turnaround time. That's what I was um, going to say. <laughs> don't, don't give our listeners a false crazy idea about how quick No, they're, they're, it's usually, and this was, this was 2012, so that was eight years ago, and it was six months then, so I suspect it's longer now. Um, but Andy sent him an email saying, so I was just wondering if you'd had a chance to read it, mm. and Patrick said, I'm reading it this afternoon. We'll get back to you. And he got back and said, I really like this. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to buy it. It we, you know, a, a few, you know, an editorial letter, a few changes. And we're going, Oh God, you know, it's, it's 35,000 words. This is going to be months. He wanted us to change one sentence entirely and two words in one sentence and one word in another sentence. <laughs> That bastard. <laughs> yeah. Compromising our artistic it. integrity here. And that was it. And we were gobsmacked. But Awesome. So, yeah. Now, you mentioned something. If I can way back a little bit. We've talked a lot about different uh, cons and uh, writing conferences. The ICFA, we have never talked on in the podcast, being the International Conference on the Fantastic in the Arts. You want to tell people a little bit about what it is? Who goes there? What do they do? It is it is my favorite con, I think, other than maybe world fantasy. I love ICFA. Um, it it takes place in Florida in the middle of March. So if you live in a place where it snows, really Florida, the middle of March. And the first time I went to ICFA, I was living in Cleveland, Ohio. So oh my God, Florida in March. It was warm. Um, it is an academic conference. So it is, it is 85% academics who write about and teach science fiction and fantasy, most with a, an emphasis on the fantastic, um, international. And the other 15% or so is writers who come. And most years there is, you, you get a reading or a panel, and the rest of the time you're sitting around a pool with a drink with an umbrella in it, talking to other writers in your bathing suit. That sounds rough. I, I, I except for the year, except for the year that there was the tail end of a hurricane and it was raining horizontally for the entire four days. Uh. Um, but it is, it is an absolutely fabulous con. Um, and, you know, every once in a while, somebody will be doing a, a paper on either your, your work or somebody you know, and you'll go and, but the interface between academics and fiction writers is fascinating. And there's some overlap. Like John Kessel is, is both. Um, I'm trying to think of, of who Andy Duncan is both. Um, so there are some people that, that have a foot in each camp. And for the rest of us, we end up, you know, the, the academics get to meet writers in the flesh um, or in the bar or in the restaurant. Um, and writers get, to, yeah. writers get to talk about academics and you get to push works that you love, sometimes works that you've written, sometimes works that friends have written, sometimes works that you just absolutely adore but that have 
not gotten the attention you think they deserve and said, you should teach this book because it absolutely relates to everything else you've said. Um, so it's a really wonderful way. And I got introduced to it because in the sometime in the first decade of the Tip Tree Award, I think 1990, 96, 97, 98, somewhere in there, um, we decided that we would have the tip tree ceremony at ICFA because it would be a reaching a new community and be getting the opportunity for the tip tree honor list and winners and long list to get a foothold in um, science fiction and fantasy curriculum. In and, and again, I want to pause for a second and say the tip tree award is an annual literary prize for uh, exploring understanding of gender, which it is, it is a, a very the, key. Criteria, the criterion is one sentence, and it is given to the work of science fiction or fantasy which best explores or expands gender roles in the previous year. Nice. So we're no longer the victory ward. It is now the other otherwise award i believe yeah I, I was on the motherboard for 20 years and i was the primary fundraiser for 20 years doing an auction at wiscon every year um but i have not been involved in the tip tree or the otherwise for six years now so, so i am i am less acquainted i'm more i'm very well acquainted with its history i am less acquainted with its current iterations so I want to jump back to ICFA for a moment, just to just to do a shout out. It was started by Brian Atterbury, who is a professor who was, I don't know if he's retired, at Idaho State University in the English department, where my mother taught. They were colleagues, and they co-taught a genre fiction class, which is where my mother finally learned why science fiction was interesting. <laughs> for years, she I was like... Why do you read such trash? And suddenly she's like, I get it. So Brian Atterbury, I owe him for, for you know, bringing my mother and I that much closer together. Brian Atterbury is a national treasure. Um, I don't think he is actually technically one of the founders of ICFA, but he's certainly been there from, from the get-go. Yeah. Um, Seems is, that is many of the, the nicest The nicest man in the world. <laughs> except, it seemed like mention the criteria that you were chatting about though i mean when i'm thinking about for for children's literature or the young adult literature middle grade because it now seems to be broken up into three um this can actually matter a lot the whole idea of the larger representation you know a, a variety of colors and genders and uh, disabilities and many other pieces that get written. How do you see that that is starting to creep more into fiction, you know, especially genre fiction for younger kids? Well, let me see. A, a, a brief discussion of children's literature for those who don't know. You, you start out with picture books, which are pictures with maybe some words. Some of them don't have words at all. Um, and then when kids are able to read by themselves, they get into what we call chapter books, which are usually very short, very simple, very big print, um, may or may not have, actually, I'm going to take it back. When, when, when I started out writing kids' books, they were, they were fairly simple and, and didn't get into meatier concepts like race or gender and everything, but they do now. 
And then there is middle grade, which is books with chapters and no pictures, because chapter books usually have some kind of illustration. Um, and then there is the very filmy, non-clarity non divided um, border between middle grade and what they're sort of calling like older middle grade, older readers, upper, upper elementary. Um, and then there's YA, which generally is what when I was a kid was called teen books. Um, YA is kind of middle school and up. Middle grade is sort of middle, young middle school to maybe third grade. And then everything else is, is falling on there. So, yeah, I mean, it is, I don't know anybody that isn't writing. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back off here. If you are creating a world, you don't want to create a one-dimensional world. You want to create a three-dimensional world. And that means it has to be filled with three-dimensional characters. And unless you live in, sorry, Karen, but rural Idaho. <laughs> well, I'm trying, to think, I'm trying to think of some place that is, even, even in 2020, not the most diverse place in the world. If you are writing, if you are writing a children's book in a city, you better be diverse in in race and class and gender, because otherwise you are you are painting a 1930s whitewashed portrait of you know you're hearkening back to Pollyanna, which isn't 1930s, but um, and if you are if you are doing something in rural Nebraska or rural Idaho you could probably get away with not having as much diversity because it it's accurate. There really isn't. You know, you might have one black kid in a class and that would be an interesting story. Whereas if you're setting something in Detroit, you might have one white kid in a class. And or Arkansas. I, I spent a semester in Arkansas. I was the one white kid in a class. So I'd love to see more literature come from places like that. Yeah, and well, and gender, gender stuff is trickier. I mean, obviously, with, with racial diversity, you've got kids of all races and backgrounds, class, everything else, reading, reading at about the same, you know, they're, they're all learning to read at about six or seven or eight. Um, there have been in the past, problems with presenting gender issues to younger readers. Um, but over the last 20 years, that has been changing as society changes. So I don't, I am sure that right now there are middle grade books about trans characters. Not very many, but I'm sure there are some. There are a lot of YA. The interesting thing and and the problematic thing is if you find a sympathetic editor and a sympathetic publisher you can get an edgy work about gender published but you will still find that there are places in the united states where it will be banned <laughs> libraries will not pick it up teachers will not pick it up parents will complain to the school board that their children have been given this filth Right. But then it can get on the news, and then you get more publicity for the book, and more people will buy it. Yeah, but you don't get on the news. Yeah. You anymore. just, the book, the book just doesn't get bought. 
<laughs> it makes you wonder if Beverly Cleary had started writing right now what it would look like. Beverly Cleary is still alive. Yeah, really. but she's got a body of work <laughs> talking about. She does. She you know. does. And she was, for, for the late 1940s, early 1950s, tackling some stuff that nobody else was tackling. And then there's Judy Bloom, who, who ramped it up a notch and was tackling stuff that nobody was tackling. And, yeah. you know, you, you kind of wonder how, are you there, God, it's me, Margaret, and... I just wanted to say that Beverly Cleary is 104 years old. Yes, she had a she had a birthday in April, I believe. Yeah, I remember. But But every every generation, every generation of children's books, there's somebody that pushes the envelope, and then there are people that that see that opening and and follow it. And like any like any genre, children's books grow on the shoulders of the people that came before. Now, myself very much included, because I grew up reading Beverly Cleary. She had a book called Ellen Tebbets that had a character named Ellen. So I loved it. And Ellen Tebbets looked as good in a ballet tutu as I did, which is to say not. Um, yeah, I adored Beverly Cleary. Um, but every, you know, every, there's always going to be somebody at the, the forefront of the wedge pushing the envelope. and, and that book is going to be widely praised in liberal circles for opening a door to things that kids have been said, yeah, we don't talk about that, and widely banned and damned in other circles where people still believe that children should not be exposed to, you know, if you are in a community that thinks the homosexuality is evil, then the the picture book about uh, the kid having two mothers is probably not going to be in your school library. Well, I grew up in rural Idaho, um, although we were actually in a town, um, but it had an edge of town. So you could, you know, it ended and then there was like nothing but crops. But I was on the young adult board for the library when I was a young adult. I was a teenager because that's when young adults first had, had a name. And so I would, I, when a parent would complain about a book, they would show it to the three or four of us on the young adult board. And I was very nice of them because they, that way we could jump directly to the, the, the section where they had sex. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. They had sex in a, you know, Judy Bloom book or some of these others. And I know exactly what you mean because, you know, like you say, I, I grew up there. So, so was your young adult board I, totally consisting of teenagers? Yes. It was, it was, awesome. it was people in high school. Yeah. I do not believe that there is ever actual sex in a Judy Bloom book, although they talk about the existence of sex. No, there's one book where, where in fact, they, they I don't know if they do it. it exactly, but I think they did. I'll now have to go look it up. But, um, but yeah, because <laughs> we'll, there was... We'll put it in the because, lighter notes once Karen finds it. Yeah, because well, I mean, there, there was a very graphic scene. There was a graphic scene that involved male nudity. So, ah. yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, I remember the, 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 the thing about Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, was they talked about girls getting periods. Yeah. And people was- wanted to ban it. And it's like, I'm sorry, every somewhere between 10 and 14-year-old girl does that. And it's part of nature and, and, and all of that. And, and you don't want kids to know about it, which is 
criminal. Well, um, we're still not allowed to say, I think, the word vagina in Congress, but um, we'll grow up one day. Yeah. The, the Judy Bloom novel of which we speak is Forever. Um, published in 75, deals with teenage sexuality. Um, um, there is talk here of penises named Ralph. Yes, I, I remember that. Um, yeah. And they do actually have... Oh, sex. God, that's yeah. my grandfather's name. <laughs> I'm sorry. But yes, so that well, was no, the I'm book. Sure, I'm pretty sure he had one because really he was my grandfather, which means I'm okay. here. So. Yeah. But you don't want to think about that. But yeah, so but that was 75. And so we, we got in the library um, uh, that year, the year later. But I was a teenager. And I remember, I remember Ralph being named, and I remember that was the first book that I, it was very nice of them, the parents, to mark the sections that they complained about so we know where to jump to if you wanted to, to read it to like find out. What page 16 of The Godfather, which at summer camp fell out from over-reading. <laughs> oh, dear. So, the, Ellen. The phrase, the, the, phrase, the blood-gorged pole of muscle angled out of his shorts. Oh, yes, that stuck with you. It etched in my yeah. It's Sunny fucking a bridesmaid up against the door. Yeah, we remember. <laughs> and and it's page sixteen of the paperback edition of The Godfather. And when I was sixteen in nineteen seventy, we passed it around in my cabinet summer camp so much that page sixteen just fell out. <laughs> oh, oh. That's but I just want to another another story from that that same year at summer camp. Though I was. Reading Goodbye Columbus by Philip Roth. They made it into a and, movie. Yeah. Well, it was, I'm from Columbus, Ohio. It was set in my hometown. So I was reading it. And one of the, possibly the salient plot points is that the young woman goes away for the weekend and forgets her diaphragm. I was 16. I was from a very, very, very conservative white suburb. I had no idea what a diaphragm was. There was one dictionary in the, my summer camp library, so I used it because I don't know what this word means. Have you looked it up? Is you know, a mantra in my childhood. So I looked it up, and drumhead didn't really seem to fit. She forgot her drum because she went away for the weekend. Yeah, I don't know. The, the muscle in between your lungs and the rest of you that, that allows you to breathe and thinking, yeah. Well, you can't really forget that. I had no clue the plot of this story. And so I went to my favorite counselor and I said, what's a diaphragm? And she went, I can't tell you that. I can't talk to you. You, 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 you can't ask questions like that. And which made me think that it was dirty, but I had no idea. I mean, really, when I asked everybody I could think of and no one would tell me who which meant that that story made no sense until about two years later when I found out what a diaphragm was and went, ow, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but getting, getting back to, to younger kids' literature, because I write, I have three middle grade books, um, which are completely separate from my adult science fiction hat, which is always weird when I go to an elementary school and they go, we got a copy of your book for the library, and it's We'll Call a Springs, and I'm going, yeah, you might want to read that first. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I have, from the beginning, okay, the Green Glass Sea, my first novel, which did win the Scott O'Dell Award for historical fiction, is about two kids growing up in Los 
Alamos during World War II while their parents are inventing the atomic bomb. So, you know, your typical children's book. Yeah. I mean, I, will, I, have, I have sat at, I was sitting at a poker table in a casino once, and somebody said, so what do you do? And I said, I write children's books. And they went, oh, what are your books about? And I said, the atomic bomb. And they went, <laughs> so, but when I first pitched it, I had, I had had, I had been writing science fiction for a while and I had an editor who worked for Viking in New York hear a reading that I did, I believe at Wiscon of a short story. And she came up to me in the bar later and said, really liked your story. And I said, thank you. And she said, you write children's stories. And I said, I do not. I write stories with children in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, which I do and which I think is a serious distinction. Yeah. And she said, well, I am an editor with a children's imprint at Viking in New York. And if you ever change your mind, here's my card. <laughs> huh. So I, I went home and thought, and at this point I had, I don't know, maybe six short stories published, which, you know, is not going to buy you a vacation home. Um and I had this awards. well, and it's, and winning an award. Yes, awards but, are nice, or, but they don't or, buy you a car. Yeah, or or nominations. I had a lot of nominations. I don't. I did not at that point have a win. No, your first short story won a Nebula. No, it did not. It got nominated for a Nebula and and, yeah. and nominated for a Hugo, but it did not win. My oh. third Nebula nomination won. Oh, okay. Um, but no, the first one. I was sure I was going to win. I had read the other stories in my category. <laughs> I had handicapped this race. I was sure I never do that. Um, anyway, so in in two thousand five, I had a handful of short stories published, um, and they had they had gotten attention. They had made the playoffs. They had you know gotten nominations. Um, but I got home and thought, what part of an editor in New York? would like to see a book should I ignore and I tried <laughs> and I tried for months to think of a children's book elves bleh. little cottage in the woods with bleh. and I bored myself silly and I just I could not think of a children's book that I wanted to spend you know a year or two or three writing and then one night I had probably smoked some weed because this seemed like a really good idea at the time. I remembered a short story that I had written that I had not sold um, about two kids living in Los Alamos who go down to the atomic test site and pick up pieces of um, nuclear waste because the first atomic test in New Mexico was so hot that it melted 75 acres of desert into glass, which has never happened before or since. Um, but I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever think, thought of, and longer, much longer story. But anyway, so I'd written a story that had not sold. And I thought, oh, I'll send Sharon the atomic story. So I did. And then I woke up in the morning, more or less sober, and thought, oh, that was such a bad idea. That was such a bad, well, so much for having a children's book career, because really, she's going to think I'm a crazy person. And she wrote back and said, huh, well, that would be different. Um, 
send me 90 pages in an outline. So I spent the next year writing 90 pages in an, uh, in an outline. And then the 90 pages was basically the backstory for this 3,000 word short story that was already written, um, which first appeared on strangehorizons.com um, because nobody else would buy it because it was fiction about science, but it was not science fiction, which is sort of like you write children's stories. It's like, no, I write stories with children in them. It, it's, it's a very weird distinction, but it's important. So I, I sent, I, so I spent a year writing, writing 90 pages of this book. And for those of you who've read Green Glass Sea, it started out as a robot alien abduction science fiction novel. Oh, really? Yep. <laughs> wow. Oh, <that's> <laughs> I love that that went so different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I gave Sharon the 90 pages in the outline, and the outline, and I wanted the book to open in Los Alamos in, like, 1943 and end in Roswell, New Mexico, which is about, geographically, it's about 120 miles away, in the summer of 1947 when, I mean, Roswell, the yeah. aliens that we all know as aliens come down and they're flying saucers. And that was, that was, my, that was my bracketed plot line and so i gave sharon the 90 pages in the outline at world fantasy in minneapolis in i believe 2002 or 2003 and then i sat in the bar nursing a beer watching mm. my editor not even my editor yet watching an editor across the room make faces and turn pages of a manuscript over never do that either Never. But at the end of it, at the end of about two hours, by which point I had had several beers, she came over and said, okay, this was interesting. Um, the outline, like, how wedded are you to the ending? The en in the ending, Dewey Kerrigan, uh, okay, in the ending, it's Roswell, New Mexico in July 1947. The alien ship comes down recognizes Dewey as a kindred spirit and takes her back to their home planet. Oh, wow. Oh. Awesome. Mm. That's but, kind of what happens in the book. Yeah, I don't remember that. No, it is not what happens in the book. And Sharon said, so the whole alien abduction, when are you to that? And I said, well, I'm, I'm a science fiction writer. I'm trying to make it science fiction. She said, it, the rest of it is like completely mimetic historical fiction. How, 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 what would I, what would it take to convince you that, that that's a bad idea? Um, and I said, well, I could, I mean, but it's so, yeah. You sm smile and say money? Yeah. If, if you um, buy it, it's not science fiction? <laughs> well, it's, I only had 90 pages of the 350 pages or so that the final manuscript was. So, but. But yes, somebody, somebody who knew what they were doing said, I don't think this works. And at that point, I also didn't think it would work because it felt really hokey. Like everything else was so realistic. And I that's, didn't think I was as good a writer as it would take to make that ending work. It was, it was several levels above my pay grade. And so I... I get said, it. I get it. I, well, I, I, I mean, I might have been able to make that ending work. I'm glad you didn't, though. I'm glad you didn't, because it works so beautifully the way it is. 
It works just so beautifully. It's not a science fiction story. It's a it's a it's a girl's growing up in you know during the atomic bomb period. It, it works magically. It was really really good. It just is. The way it's, it is. And it's, it's also it's also not a children's book. I will go well, see. We will put a link to it on our on our page because I think it's important that everybody be able to go out and find it and read it and decide for themselves because they should buy your work um, and I mean, judge. It's, it's, <laughs> let me let me let me let me put a footnote with that. It's not a children's book. It is. It is now in October. It will have been out for fourteen years. It has been called a classic of children's literature. One. It won multiple awards. It is still in print. It has sold, I believe at this point, 140-some thousand copies. Yay. It is on every summer reading list in every state in the country. Awesome. It's wow. a success. Well, I did not write it as a children's book. I wrote it as a novel. I was actually kind of offended when my editor said, and, and it, she said something, I said, wait, it's coming out as YA? And she said, oh, God, no, it's not that old. It's coming out as children's. I was offended. Um, and oh, the, ending, the ending is not the ending of a children's book at True. all. It is, it is a very ambiguous adult ending, and I'm very, very, very happy with it. Awesome. Um, I need to wind but, up. Gentle people, I, I, we, we're hitting the edge of our time, and I need to wind us up. Okay? Can I can I can I say one one more like five five sentence paragraph? Please do. I have had teachers write to me and say that their kids have come up with a copy of Green Glass Sea and say, Mrs. Smith, the last chapter of my book is missing. Ah, <laughs> because it is not a children's ending. It is it is an, an open ended ambiguous ending but if you're an adult reader it's not because you know everything that um the ending of the book says she's she's going through the radio dial and she's trying to get something and they're out in the middle of the desert she's trying to get something that isn't static and she finally gets the barest bit of a news broadcast and it says this morning on the japanese city of hiroshima and that's all there is oh and the kid says, oh, it's just war news. We can always get that later and snaps off the dial. And that's the end of the book. Yeah. And if you're an adult, you yeah. know exactly yeah. what has just happened. And if you're a kid, you think the last chapter of your book is missing because I did not tie everything up with a, with a neat bow. Um, and I'm... <laughs> And and that is possibly the the hallmark of my career is I write I write good books but I don't write easy books. <laughs> yeah, and you're not sorry at all, are you? No, nor should you be. <laughs> no, no what my 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 third book is actually at this very moment a finalist for the Oregon Readers Choice Award, which Woo-hoo. will be announced sometime next week, um, and. Yeah. yeah. So, and and it won the Children's Historical Book Prize, which involved a very large check and a trip to New York last year. Woo-hoo. Uh, so, yeah, well, something that I'm doing is working with both kids and adult gatekeepers. Well, so, I'm, yes, I'm happy. 
Yeah, well, your last your last book was about a girl pitcher, okay, who got to pitch in the you know or didn't get to but wanted to be pitching in the boys' league, and on Young Sheldon on TV, his twin sister suddenly decided she wanted to be a pitcher and was pitching on the boys' little league team. So I know, I know I, I I shouted out loud when I watched that episode. <laughs> yeah, you're having an effect. That's awesome. We're going to put links to all of uh, Ellen's stories and other interesting things mentioned on our website, which is www.ridersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us and Ellen on Facebook and Twitter. We all love to answer email. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre McGaffey-Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Langberg. You can hear more from Michael Langberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Jackal Designs, enabling you all to buy cool WDC swag. Thank you so much for coming and visiting with us today, Ellen. I love your stories. Thank you. It was it was it was an incredible pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>